Hello, this is Gregory Novak, and this is the Cunning of Geist podcast, episode one. I'd like to begin by giving you some background on the reason for this podcast. For the last four or five years, I have been one of the administrators of the Hegel Study Group on Facebook. And over this period of time, we have grown the group from, oh, when I joined, there were, were perhaps 200 or so members, and today we have over 15,000 members worldwide. And it's been just a wonderful experience to discuss online the philosopher Hegel. And I was thinking that given the size of the group, 15,000 members, that it might be worthwhile to try to extend my work in the Hegel study group to my own podcast. So this is the first one, and we'll see how it goes. And hopefully we'll do many more after this. One other thing that this provides, it, it allows me to go beyond Hegel and not just have to deal with the confines of Hegel's philosophy, but it will allow me to explore other areas that I'm interested in, other philosophic, scientific, and, and other psychological ideas. Let me also say that one of my objectives here is to have a, a podcast that is accessible to people that are new to philosophy um, as well as people that are, um, have, have studied it for many years. Um, one of the things we say in the Hegel study group is that we provide a level playing field for neophyte and scholar alike, and that is my intention here in this podcast. It's not going to be too technical, and hopefully will be something that somebody just um, is curious will, will find of interest. Now, let me begin by giving you some background uh, on myself. I do not have any formal philosophical training in, in school. I did not ever take even one philosophy course in high school or college. I um, was exposed to philosophy in an English course. We re read Camus' The Stranger, and I did not find that to be particularly informative or helpful to me. And as a matter of fact, it kind of turned me off to philosophy nothing against existentialism, but there seemed to be a uh, almost a nihilistic attitude that pervaded the, the stranger. And it, I said, if this is philosophy, it's something I don't understand or I wouldn't be interested in. So unfortunately, I did not take any philosophy courses in college. I majored in math and psychology, but I've always been a very abstract thinker in terms of some of the big questions in life. What is the meaning of life? Does life have a purpose? These are things everybody thinks about. And unfortunately, there are very few answers. And I was, I was frustrated in school uh, that my courses and the teachers just did not seem to address these bigger questions. So upon graduating from, from school, I, I decided to actually try to research uh, on my own and educate myself on some of these bigger questions. I began uh, by searching bookstores, and I uh, would go to the library and to try to find books that might help me with these bigger questions. At the time, there was very limited material in a bookstore. The, the New Age had not quite sunk in yet. This, this was back in the early 1970s. And uh, there perhaps would be three or four books on alternative thinking. Um, and the libraries were very cumbersome back then. It, uh, this was pre-internet. You just couldn't do a Google search. 
you'd have to go into the library and get out the card catalog. And if you're lucky, you might find one book. So it was very tedious. It would take two or three hours to try to find anything of interest. And then you'd finally get the book and you realize it's not what you were looking for. So it was very difficult. I was very frustrated at the time that I could not seem to find any answers that I was looking for in terms of the bigger questions in life. And I finally found a book um, in the bookstore called The Story of Philosophy by Will Durant. And I highly recommend that to anybody that's just entering into uh, philosophical thinking. I read it cover to cover and really enjoyed it. It It takes each of the major philosophers, maybe 15 or 20 of them, for the last couple thousand years, and does a whole chapter on each one, and really uh, talks about uh, their unique perspectives on things, what issues they tackled, how they differ from the other philosophers, and it's very understandable. Anybody can, can read that and benefit from that book. So I was excited to pursue philosophy, and again, I hit a... Um, roadblock, though. I went out and bought a a book by Kant, the German philosopher, and I tried to read it and I could make no sense of it. It just was way, way too difficult to read for me at that time. So I said, well, this is not for me as well. I also took out some books on Plato and I uh, enjoyed them, but I, I found he, I was reading about reincarnation and people coming back as animals. And, and I said, well, this can't, this is not for me. So Again, it was very uneducated on my part to dismiss Plato's philosophy for that reason, but that's what I did. I finally uh, started engaging in uh, more esoteric readings. I thought maybe perhaps I should look outside traditional knowledge sources and into other areas. One book that I I came across was the um, I Ching, which is a thousands of year old Chinese book on, um, you could say it's fortune telling, but it's much more complicated than that. It really presents narratives, situations that possibly express to you what you're going through at the time. There's a way to consult the the I Ching and you get a hexagram which describes your situation and tells you what's going on with that, what, you know, where where, where it's going to lead to and what actions you might want to take. And also, I found it very interesting because it's, it's mathematically based. It's based on a combination of a, a solid line um, and a divided line. And you, you create this pair of solid and divided, and you, you hook them up into trigrams and then into a an hexagram. And that's what gives you the, um, the reading. So I really enjoyed the I Ching, and I actually still consult it once in a while. But I... I think the thing that really got me going into the New Age um, era was um, a book by P.D. Uspensky called In Search of the Miraculous. It, um, he was a, a philosopher, esotericist that lived in the early 20th century, and In Search of the Miraculous is a book about his experiences with George Gurdjieff, who was also a, uh, a mystic, a, a teacher. He had his own philosophy. So that led me to Gurdjieff. I read a number of Gurdjieff's books. I read all of Ospensky's books, and I was really um, enthused about what they were talking about. To give you some background, Gurdjieff claimed that he had come in touch with a school, an ancient school in the middle of Asia somewhere that nobody knew about, and they kept themselves secret, but they had um, fragments of an unknown teaching that would teach the harmonious development of man, 
and that man had to work on himself and there were specific techniques and exercises that one could do to become more knowledgeable. And as Gurdjieff said, to grow a soul. That was one of his, uh, his lines. And I read that and kept it by my bedside and was really enthused about it. And, and I should say that it, it wasn't the only thing I was into at the time. I was reading science books. I was covering the new developments in quantum physics. But somehow the teachings of Gurdjieff and Uspensky sort of brought everything together for me. One of the things that Uspensky said, though, is that, that Gurdjieff and, and him could only take you so far that you would need to come in contact with a school of some sort in order to really progress. And I wasn't sure what he meant by that. He, he obviously didn't mean a formal education like a college or university, but he was talking about some esoteric schools. Whether they existed or not, I had no idea. But I, I was sort of at a at the end of my road here. I had studied them as far as I could take it, and I still had many questions about the purpose of life and what the meaning of life is and those kinds of things. I then moved on to another phase. I um, got into meditation. I got into Hindu philosophy. I would read about the, the great Hindu philosophers and I started doing yoga. I would do yoga exercises and I would meditate every day. And I found that to be very helpful over this stretch of time. But still, I did not come in contact with any school or organization that provided the, the provide me a path to greater enlightenment. Then I came across a group called the Rosicrucian Order, and that seemed at the time to be maybe what I was looking for. It, I, I, I remember that they used to advertise in popular magazines back in the 50s and 60s, and again, this was before there was really a new age, and they would um, talk about, find your philosophy of life, what is the meaning of life, are you still seeking answers to questions that you can't find the answers to, join us. So it was a correspondence school, actually, and I sent away, and they would send you monographs, one, one a week, and you could study them and read them. And I found it to be pretty interesting. It took you step by step. There wasn't a lot to cover each week. There were only about three or four pages, but it was quite interesting. They, they covered um, a lot of esoteric thinking, but they also had a great respect for knowledge. They went into detail in the Greek philosophers, had me re revisit Plato and, and those folks. And I really benefited from it. The Rosicrucian Order is also a, um, um, it's a lodge. It's a fraternal order. and You can actually go to meetings and join and be initiated into the order, sort of like the Masons or other fraternal organizations. I never did that. I never went to a meeting or joined or was initiated in any respect, but I did enjoy getting the monographs and would read them as I went about my, my life. But they, they finally, after many years of monographs, I don't know how many years in total, they may have 15 years of it. I don't, I don't even know because I stopped receiving them after a while. Um, but what caused that was they started to get into more of this notion of hidden masters and coming into the influence of a personal hidden master. These are people that lived on the ethereal plane of existence. And I'm not knocking that. If somebody believes in that, that's fine. But it just was too much for me at the time. I still was too much grounded here in the, in the real world. And that just was um, almost a tipping point for me. So I stopped with the Rosicrucian Order and 
again was left, um, where do I go from here? What turned up next was a very unique book called a Course in Miracles. This is a book that was written, I believe in the late 60s, by one Helen Shuckman, who was a psychologist in New York City. And she claimed that she was not the writer of it, but she was channeling an inner voice that, that told her what to put down. And anyway, it, it, regardless of where it came from, it's quite a beautiful book, and it speaks to forgiveness and creating a more, more loving relationship with others. And I, I found it to be pretty amazing, actually, and, and studied it. They have a workbook also where you can read after you finish the text, which is many hundred pages. You can do a daily workbook, which is sort of a daily reminder of, you know, to, to practice forgiveness. One of the things they also stressed in The Course of Miracles is that the world is created in error. Um, this is really a, a Gnostic view. It's been a while, around a while in certain traditions, and The Course in Miracles picks up on this. That, um, As a matter of fact, they say that the world is not real at all, and that time is an illusion, and this is all a bad journey that we're on, and The Course in Miracles can help you get back to the true essence of life. I really wanted to dig down because the the Course in Miracles does present itself as sort of a unique philosophical tract in addition to the loving, feel-good nature of it. And I went to a number of seminars and read a lot of the secondary literature on, on the Course. And I finally just kept focusing on this issue of time. Is time an illusion or is it not? And of course, this notion of time being an illusion, that's, that's not unique to the Course of Miracles. That's around in many different philosophies and many different worldviews. However, I, I studied it in detail. I, I read what the great religious writers had to say about time. I read what the great scientists had to say about time. You know, Einstein himself said time is a stubbornly persistent illusion. So I studied the religious um, folks, I studied scientific versions of what time is, and I studied philosophical versions of what time is. And there, it was all over the place. But I finally kept running into this concept uh, or the notion of time being a process or a, an evolution or a constant change. And a, a lot of people pointed to the philosopher Hegel, who, who was a German philosopher from the late 1700s, early 1800s. And a number of them said that Hegel really was spot on in, in his analysis and that time is really a process. The, the nature of time can be looked at actually in three different ways. And I think the philosopher McTaggart was one of the ones that talked about this. He, he said there was an, an A theory of time, a B theory of time, and a C theory of time. The A theory of time is how we experience time. It's just it's a flow. It just moves. Um, that the we you know we move into the future from the and 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 the current moment disappears into the past. The B theory of time is more the static view that time is there. It's like a book that's on the shelf. You can take it out and you can look at a page, but that page is always you know page eighty nine and it comes before page ninety and it comes after page eighty seven. We experience it as somebody reading the book, but in, in, in reality, the book is, is not moving. It, it's just there. And 
McTaggart also had a C series of time, which is you take the book and you just jumble up the pages. And it would be sort of a deck of cards that you just shuffle and you could look at one card at a time and that would be it. So McTaggart actually believed that the, the A theory of time, tense time, is, is an impossibility. There's a major contradiction there. Well, Hegel, on the other hand, and, and we'll get into this in much more detail, and it's more complicated than this, but Hegel's philosophy is much more of a process, much more of a tense time. And that intrigued me. So I said, well, I better get into Hegel more. And so I went out, researched him, got some books by Hegel, and he's, as Hegel students know, he's notoriously difficult to read firsthand. So I bought some secondary books about Hegel and read them and kept studying him. And I think there were two real key points for me during this study of mine. The first was I came across a book by um, Alexander Kojev, who's a philosopher in the 20th century, who wrote about Hegel in his book, the, the, An Introduction to the Reading of Hegel. And Kojev went into a lot of detail about this. And I, I found that very interesting and it sort of turned a, a fire on, in, in me with respect to Hegel. In addition, later on, I found a book by Robert Wallace. He's also one of our admins in the Hegel study group about Hegel. And that I went through. It took me about six months to go through it step by step, page by page. But it just really opened up the floodgates for me with respect to Hegel. And I I said, this is is somebody I want to study more. And hopefully I will be covering a lot of this in, in future podcasts. So... I was really interested in Hegel. I felt that I had finally found somebody that uh, could provide me with the answers I was looking for, the big questions. And um, as I said, I joined the Hegel study group. This is about five years ago. was actively contributing. And today, I'm one of four admins, and we have 15,000 people, which I'm very proud of. Just a brief word on the other admins. They are, I must say that... These gentlemen are all PhDs, and they're all exceptional philosophers. Two of them have published works. Uh, Robert Wallace has published two books on Hegel. And I'm, I must say that I'm, I'm honored and privileged to be one of the admins with these fellows. These people are way beyond my pay grade. Like I said, I do not have a PhD in philosophy. And I'm, I'm not even sure why they put up with me, but we do get along well. And it's a really an honor of my lifetime to be associated with these gentlemen. And hopefully, I would like to actually interview them as part of this podcast, maybe do it one at a time, maybe eventually put us all together. Um, I think a lot of the members of the Hegel Study Group would enjoy this, and I think other people that are uh, just following the podcast would enjoy it as well. Now, m- many of you may be wondering why I came up with the title, The Cunning of Geist. Let me just address that. Uh, first of all, the meaning of Geist. Geist is a German word that means both mind and spirit. It's combined into one word, which means that in the German language, they really associate mind rationality with spirituality, which is quite unique, something we don't have here in the English language. And you may have heard the term Geist, um, probably most familiar with Zeitgeist, which is a term used, which means the spirit of the age, the zeitgeist of the times, you know, the zeitgeist of the 60s was revolution and rock and roll music and so on and so forth. 
But why the cunning of Geist? Why, what does that mean? Well, it's actually a reference to a term that Hegel uses called the cunning of reason. And what that means is that Geist enacts itself through human beings, through communities, through actions in the world, and it has a purpose. The, the purpose is for greater freedom, greater self-consciousness, greater awareness of ourselves and who we are and what we're doing. And Geist will use certain individuals to achieve those aims. And it'll do it sometimes even without them knowing, or they may even have different motives for doing this. It may have egoistic motives, but Geist will get behind that in order to promote its agenda of greater freedom and greater actualization. So it doesn't mean that Geist is some force outside of the universe on some other ethereal plane that's working like, you know, on us. It's actually, a, I think, a better way to look at it is Geist is within us. And it's within our communities, in our societies, in our nations, in our groups, in our identities of trying to progress toward a better future for us all. So we'll be, be discussing this in more detail in future podcasts, but that is the, the genesis of the title. And of course, cunning means that the guys will use the people, maybe not even to their knowledge, but, but for the benefit of, uh, of mankind. And it doesn't mean that history is all good. Hegel is called history a slaughter bench. And there's a lot to deal with in history, but history is a working out of of different ideas, different ideologies, and there certainly are conflicts in this regard, and anybody who studied history knows this. But there is, I believe, and I believe Hegel believes, that there is a purpose, a, a meaning to all this, and this is what we're trying to achieve through history. Now, just one last point. Um, I want to talk about a concept called true infinity. And this is, I believe, one of the most important parts of Hegel's philosophy. It is a notion of his that one can go beyond the finite. And that is really what makes us real here. That's really our purpose, to go beyond the given, to strive. You may call it an ought, what ought to be. You can envision the way things should be, could be better, how your life could be better, how you could be freer how you could be more helpful to other people rather than just accepting what is given. You may say, well, why is it called good infinity or true infinity? Uh, Well, Hegel also had a concept called bad infinity, which is just a series of numbers that goes on forever. You, You can always add one more number to a series of numbers. He felt that was, that's a mathematical concept, but that's not what the true meaning of infinity is. His infinity is something opposed to the finite world. And unfortunately today, so much of the emphasis in our world is on materialism and just finite things, and that's all that exists. Something only exists if it can be measured. This finite existence tends to work uh, against the infinite, the truly infinite, and the ability to go beyond. This is a very important concept, and with Hegel, it's one of the things that uh, turned a light bulb on in me, and, and that, that one can find purpose and meaning in their own life by participating in this true infinity, by trying to make things better, by going beyond our natural passions and our instincts to make this a better world. So we'll be talking more about this in future podcasts. And again, uh, we're hoping to get um, the administrators of the Hegel Study Group on board in terms of being interviewed in this podcast. And also, we're opening this up to topics beyond Hegel. 
I want to discuss time in a lot of detail. I want to discuss the breakthroughs that are going on in quantum physics and what that means in terms of our perceptions of reality and philosophy. I want to talk about our materialistic world today. And again, I totally believe in science, what science can tell us and what science learns. And I, I follow the, the, the breakthroughs in science. But I do believe that there are things beyond which science does not touch upon, which we'll discuss there are limits of empiricism and we need to go beyond. So anyway, I will close this out now. And um, I want to thank you all for listening to this first podcast and uh, for being a part of this. If you're not a member of the Hegel Study Group and you want to check us out, please go to Facebook and look up Hegel Study Group and apply for membership. We'd be happy to have you come on board. Again, this is Gregory Novak, The Cunning of Geist. We'll see you next time. Thank you very much.